I'm Silas Farley. I'm a dancer with New York City Ballet, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. In this episode, we will be exploring Summer Space, a lyric dance choreographed by Merce Cunningham. Cunningham was one of the great artist visionaries, a dancer, choreographer, and teacher who worked at the intersection of movement, music, design, and technology in a career that stretched across seven decades. Cunningham originally choreographed Summer Space for his own company in 1958, with music by Morton Feldman and costumes and decor by Robert Rauschenberg. He later staged the work here at City Ballet. This year is Merce's centennial, so City Ballet is reviving summer space as part of its fall season and joining in the worldwide celebration of Merce's life. Merce was born Mercier Philip Cunningham on April 16, 1919, in Centralia, Washington. His father was a lawyer. From the start, Merce had a passion for movement. His mother remembered her three-year-old boy dancing down the aisles of their Roman Catholic church. That church was also attended by a one Mrs. Maud Barrett, who would become Merce's first dance teacher. She taught him tap and ballroom. Merce participated in exhibition ballroom competitions with Mrs. Barrett's daughter Marjorie as his partner. They even made a vaudeville tour down the West Coast. In 1936, Merce graduated from high school and followed his older brother to George Washington University in D.C. After one year, he dropped out. Upon returning home to Washington State, he enrolled in the Cornish School, now called Cornish College of the Arts, in Seattle. There, he experienced the kind of interdisciplinary artistic discourse that would animate the rest of his career. It was there he also met the composer John Cage, who ultimately became his life partner and closest artistic collaborator. Merce would later move to New York City to dance for Martha Graham, the grande dame of American modern dance. After a few years with Graham's company, he struck out on his own. During a 1953 residency at Black Mountain College in North Carolina, he formed his own troupe, the Merce Cunningham Dance Company, which he led until his death in 2009. Though known for being one of the giants of modern dance, Merce had a long and deep connection to classical ballet. At Martha Graham's prompting, he had taken classes at the School of American Ballet during his early days in New York City. He had been struck by the movement clarity in the instruction of SAB teacher Anatole Obukov. In 1947, Lincoln Kirstein had commissioned Cunningham and Cage to contribute a new work to the Kirstein Balanchine Ballet Society. The piece was called The Seasons. In it, Merce danced a duet with Balanchine muse Taniki Leclerc. The work also featured decor and costumes by Isamu Noguchi, who would later design Balanchine and Stravinsky's iconic Orpheus. Merce even guest-taught at SAB. The ballet vocabulary itself held a special place in Cunningham's creative process. It was a received dance language that he would often use to pull himself away from an idiosyncratic way of moving. And these classical ballet steps figure prominently in his summer space, the work he staged here at City Ballet in 1966. Today, I'll be joined by two guests who have complementary vantage points on this emblematic Cunningham piece. First is Kay Mazo. 
Kay is the chairman of faculty at the School of American Ballet, the official academy of New York City Ballet. She is from Chicago, where she began her dance training. She completed her training at SAB and went on to a nearly 20-year career with City Ballet, during which she originated principal roles in the ballets of George Balanchine and Jerome Robbins, including Stravinsky Violin Concerto, Duo Concertant, Vienna Waltzes, Dances at a Gathering, and In the Night. In 1981, and at Balanchine's invitation, she joined the SAB faculty. There, she has shaped decades of dancers and teachers. She is also a trustee of the George Balanchine Trust, in which role she stewards the legacy of Mr. Balanchine's ballets. In 1966, she was part of the original City Ballet cast of Summer Space. Next, we have Jean Freebury. Born in Canada, Jean received her training at the Alberta Ballet School, Canada's National Ballet School, the London Contemporary Dance School, and the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. She went on to dance in the Merce Cunningham Dance Company from 1992 to 2003. She began teaching at the Merce Cunningham Studio in 1996 and currently teaches on the faculty of both SUNY Purchase and the Juilliard School, where she teaches Cunningham technique and repertory classes. She also stages the Cunningham works and is responsible for this fall's setting of summer space here at City Ballet. Jean and Kay, welcome. I'm so delighted that you're here and so looking forward to the insights that you'll be sharing with us about this extraordinary piece. Jean, what were some of Merce's unique contributions to dance? Merce had quite a few contributions to dance, and I think he was really um, an innovator from early on in his choreographic career. His collaboration with John Cage and his partnership with John Cage really changed his idea about how to make a dance and what was important about making a dance, actually. Um, one of the most important things that happened early on was they separated the music from the dance, and this gave them room to each work independently of each other. And this also was with the set design as well and the costume. So the idea was that you'd have these three elements coming together to create something that would produce a synchronicity of experience together. And, and then you would see this new thing that you hadn't thought about before. So it was, it was trying to get away from deciding everything and trying to get to something different that they hadn't seen before. Merce and John both used chance operations in their work. And this started in the early 50s. I think the first piece that Merce really worked with chance was Sweet for Five. And Summer Space also uses chance. And in, it's a 1958 piece, and I think most of his pieces after Sweet for Five were created using some sort of chance operation. And it was a very structured way of creating a composition and a structure for the piece. So, for instance, chance could dictate which phrase comes first and then second and then third. It could dictate where in space the dance happened, where each phrase happened. It could dictate tempo. It could dictate many different aspects of the piece. And this was also another way of getting out of what they thought was your ordinary way of, uh, not ordinary, but just getting out of their, they call it likes and dislikes. So what they would have come up with on their own would be different than this. It also really um, affected the the movement. I, as a dancer working for his in his company, it was like taking out all the preparation steps. 
summer space, however, doesn't have as much of that. It doesn't have any kind of logical sequence. It also doesn't have a lot of um, unison. Hmm. Um, the other thing that Merce was one of the first choreographers to really delve into video in the 70s. And I, f I feel like it affected his work in, a, in different ways. He, f he felt that things on film looked slower, so he made all the dancers dance faster. <laughs> and it could also, detail could also be seen in a different way in film. Gene, how is summer space situated in Merce's larger body of work? Uh, where was he in his life when he made it, and how does it relate to his other pieces? Summer space is pretty early on in his work. Um, his company had formed also in 1953 at Black Mountain College. So from that time, he had a company through until after he passed away. So it's pretty pretty early on. So he was really working with this idea of chance operations. I think that that was a big focus of his in, in that time period. Um, the piece itself is really about passages through space. Um, there are 21 different patterns and passages through space. And he used chance to figure out when those happened and who was doing them and what phrase was happening while they were doing that passage. And he also had this idea, which I think he had um, talked to Rauschenberg about when he was um, talking about the design, that he said he has a feeling that's like looking at a part of an enormous landscape and you can only see the action in this particular part of it. So it's kind of an interesting idea that it, the piece is just part of what's really happening overall. And so you have this also this feeling that it could be like a bird coming and landing and then, and then going off. Um, so you have these a lot of um, passages where people come in and out quite quickly, and they just do one little thing and then they go off stage. And so each thing is an exit and an entrance. There is the possibility to stay on stage after each phrase, but usually if someone stops... It's usually close to the wing, huh. <laughs> and then they go on to the next thing. Um, so it's all about that. And, um, and I, I've noticed in his notes, too, that he, he has some images. For instance, uh, he has, he's one image that says, um, like, leaves being scattered by the wind. <laughs> hmm. So it's nice to have those, those images. He doesn't have many of them in his notes, but when he has something like that, it's a nice image. He liked certain pieces of his are referred to as nature pieces, and I think this piece falls under that idea. It's not exactly in that in that realm, but but it has some some references to um, like a landscape and and what's happening mm. in a, in this landscape, but only part of you can only see part of it. So it's as I if like the it. dance continues on yeah. in infinite space yeah. in the wings that you can't yeah. see. Exactly. I'd like to say a word here about Robert Rauschenberg's costumes and decor. He painted both the dancers' unitards and the backdrop with the same lively-colored pointillist design, such that the dancers are almost completely camouflaged at moments in the piece. This underscores the idea of animals in a landscape that we were just discussing. We see these dancers within rather than against the backdrop. Now back to the conversation. Jean, could you tell us a little more about Merce's notes? So his notes are quite intricate. So each passage has a description of what's possible in that phrase. And he has a lot of those. And those are his original notes from the 50s, which I didn't really use because they don't give you the specific steps. 
Later on in the 70s, he made new notes for his company when he revived it in 74, which I have looked at, and I've found some really great images and notes. Um, it's hard to read his writing. So most of the notes that I went off of was actually um, Carolyn Brown's and Robert Swinson's who did the last staging for New York City Ballet and for us. And the interesting thing, which I also have been really, really enjoyed, is that we learned it in 99 from Carolyn and Robert Swinson, Carolyn Brown and Robert Swinson, who were practicing staging it on us before they staged it on City Ballet. And Kathleen Tracy, Katie, was in that cast, and she's my rehearsal director, and we did the same part, which is kind of cool. So it's been nice to have that connection, and I've really enjoyed having um, Katie in the room as my rehearsal director. She's been great. And Carolyn Brown was one of the original dancers in Summer Space. Could you tell us some about who was in that original cast in 1958? Yeah, in 1958, it was Carolyn Brown, Viola Farber, Marilyn Wood, Merce Cunningham, Remy Sharlip, and Cynthia Stone. Those are the original members. There's there's a very short video um, of just part of it, and it, it, it's not, it does not look anything like what we're doing now. That was lost. This video clip of the original 1958 Summer Space cast can be found in the notes for this podcast episode. Kay, I think, did Carolyn Brown's part, mm-hmm. I think. Um, like kind of, she's kind yeah. of the principal. She is the principal. That, that is definitely a principal role, hmm. I, I, I feel. Hmm. And Viola's part, too, was fairly featured. Mirth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he gave himself some extraordinary steps. He did, and the, that part is, I think, quite hard to um, stamina-wise get get through all the way, from my understanding. Mm. That premiere but. took place in August, August 17th mm-hmm. of 1958 at Connecticut College for the American Dance Festival. Mm-hmm. And could you talk to us a little bit about the rehearsal process for that original performance? I have read that um, they rehearsed in the summer, um, in this very old ballroom, and it was very hot. <laughs> so it it was a real summer space. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, at the time, the work was very difficult for the dancers. And I've, I, um, I know Caroline Brown has said that it was technically harder than any of the other pieces that she had they'd done before, more related to the ballet, actually. She says that mm-hmm. many turns in it and the many turns and jumps. And the, ba- the piece is also really based on turning, turning and jumping, turning and falling. It's a, lo- it's a lot of turning. Jean, I thought it was interesting that you talked about these nature pieces of Mm -hmm. Merce's and how there's a lot of animal-type imagery in summer space. And there's a quote from Carolyn Brown where she describes when she first saw Merce dance. And she said she was profoundly struck by Merce's animal grace and intensity. So maybe some of that natural element was just flowing out of the way that he moved, I'd imagine. He was an incredible dancer. And he really knew how to use his energy. And he was an animal out there, even when he was in, uh, He was still performing when I was dancing. He would come out and do his solo in the last piece. And it was always riveting. And how old was he at that time? Oh, in his in 80s. Company? It was mostly arm movement and just moving. But he was, he, he doesn't move like anyone else that I've seen. And he had this way of 
you know, making these quick changes of direction and energy and dynamics. He was extremely dynamic. He was a really incredible dancer. And um, I think anyone who danced with him or in the early years had so much to gain from his teachings and watching him dance. I mean, when you when you have a teacher that's really able to, you can see it and do it. And it's amazing. Mm. And I think he really, he really was in the moment. And I think that that's a really important aspect of what he wanted from his dancers was that really yourself and you're really fully in the moment. And also one one moment that I had with Merce during, during my time with him, this is not um, to do with summer space particularly, but when I first when I first joined the company, I was very excited. I was very happy, but I was also very nervous around Merce and I would, you know, always give him a big smile and, you know, like, hi. <laughs> and I remember one day, uh, about a year or so after I got in the company, he, would just, he just came up to me and he held my hand and he said, you know, you can just say hello. And I was like, and it, it was a big moment. I was very confused from it, but I was like, oh, I can just be myself. I can just, and I think that that was a, such an important moment and also how to be in his work also. You didn't have to put anything on or be anything else than you were at that moment. Kay, in 1966, you were part of the original City Ballet cast of Summer Space. What was that experience like for you? And how did you and your fellow City Ballet dancers adapt to Merce's movement? We, uh, we were bowled over by his energy, by his excitement about being in there with ballet dancers, which was so different for him and so different for us. We didn't know his technique. And he didn't really know our technique. So it was a combination of him showing us how he wanted us to move and then asking us, can we do it? Especially our, our, the women on, who were on point. And he, um, he was so welcoming and he was so open to whatever we could do and what we couldn't do. Um, it was hard. It was not easy. And we did not have music. We had his rhythms that we worked with and work to. Um, I would say after a couple of rehearsals, it got to be much more, I think we understood it a lot better. And again, being trained by Balanchine, if we had a rhythm, you sort of knew enough about your body and how, how to copy somebody who has a different way of moving. Not that we looked like Merce, but, and he didn't want us to do that, but we were so aware of how to ask our bodies to do different things that we got more into the groove with him. And we rehearsed a lot with him. Balanchine gave us lots of time to rehearse. I think he, he was kind of tickled, especially uh, we had two dancers, two male dancers who were very good, Anthony Blum and, and um, Denny Lamont. And they, they were wonderful dancers, uh, very different. De Tony Blum was much more earthbound, and Denny was somebody who could jump and turn and do lots of things. So very different dancers. But Merce seemed to really enjoy being with them and working with them. And it was, it was something that we all wanted to be, we wanted it to be as good as it could be. We had our opening night. Balanchine was there, watched it. The audience loved it. 
the opening night. Usually, though, dance people who wanted to come to the New York City Ballet came to see Balanchine's ballets in those days in the 60s. And I think it was, it was eye-opening for the audience to all of a sudden see a different, a very different technique. And they certainly enjoyed the opening night, certainly enjoyed it. The dance critic Clive Barnes wrote this about the New York City Ballet's first performance of Summer Space. Mr. Cunningham's choreography is one with the music and decoration. The surprising thing is how well it has emerged in its classical, as it were, form. It has always been obvious that Mr. Cunningham enjoyed some kind of suspicious blood brotherhood with classic ballet, but how thick the blood and how great the enjoyment was never as apparent as with this new style summer space. Later in Barnes's review, he wrote this about K. Mezzo's performance. K. Mezzo, very tentative and perfect, had a shy grace that charmed and warmed. And it was really a success. It truly was a success. And I think we were all very relieved. (laughs) (laughs) In 1951, Merce Cunningham wrote this about technique. Technique is the disciplining of one's energies through physical action in order to free that energy at any desired instant in its highest possible physical and spiritual form. For the disciplined energy of a dancer is the life energy, magnified and focused for whatever brief fraction of time it lasts. In other words, the technical equipment of a dancer is only a means, a way to the spirit. You've talked about how it was such an extraordinary experience to watch Merce move and how instructive that was. And Kay, you danced with Balanchine at a time when he was, he was showing you all and you were absorbing from the way he moved. And I found in researching that there's this extraordinary connection between Merce and Mr. B in that they were these masterful choreographers who were also teachers and that they taught by showing. Could y'all talk about that from, from the respective masters that you worked with in this? Oh yeah, I have it. <laughs> That's how we're skate class. I love it. He's a percussionist. <laughs> he was. Yeah. I love I just it. Remember. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I have. We were like this. Well, well, you you got to see him demonstrate way more than I did. I, I mean, by the time I got in the company and my first company class, I remember going in. I I had been at the studio for about six months, and I I came into class and I'm standing there and suddenly Merce does. He has a bar. He had a bar at this point. We'd stand up at the bar and he'd kind of shuffle around his feet and then he'd go, "Okay, go," and everybody would be doing it. And I'd be like, "What just happened? (laughs) (laughs) This is like code." So, you know, you, you pick it up. But. <laughs> <laughs> when dancers talk about dance, they dance. It's true. They use their words, but they also dance. We dance. It's true. <laughs> I wish you could see. <laughs> we had a teacher, Stanley Williams, at our school, and he would teach and just move his hands a little bit and very quietly. And people would come in, and then the, the students would all do what he was asking. Yeah. And the same way with Balanchine, he would be doing a step and... After a while, you could translate. Yeah. And if you didn't get it exactly right, then you, then he'd translate it again yeah. for you. But, yeah, it didn't matter. No. Yeah. Because they knew what they were doing. They just had yeah. to figure 
out how to tell us what to do. Yeah. MERS was a formidable force in class, and it was really important to be in class. That's when he gave you the information. He didn't ever, hardly ever give corrections. He just gave the material, and the idea was that you learned through doing it. And we did a repetition. We repeated things a lot. The warm-up was pretty quick. I mean, it was a lot of warm-up, but it was done in a, in a way because we knew the exercises, and he would just go, and then, and then we'd do it. Um, so we were, we were warm fairly fast, and so we had a lot of time at the end to go across the floor and do phrases 10 or 11 times or more. And, and he'd always be working um, on his next idea in class. <laughs> And so you would be, you would know, oh, what are we be doing next time? Are we going to be doing all these really fast footwork things we're doing right now? <laughs> are we doing all these dirty things? And <laughs> it's interesting. But he, um, he was very much in the process of um, teaching and everyone coming together to, to take class and really work every day towards something. And then after he had a group of dancers that could really perform in his, with his language. And then he didn't have to explain anything when he was choreographing because it was already there. And I think that that rigor is really important, at least for him. It was extremely important to have that. And he himself was so intense. And we, he, he gave class, and then in our performance days, we would rehearse, and then we'd have a break, and we'd come back, and he was there an hour before warming himself up, and everybody was on stage warming themselves up, mm. and it was important that you were there. So I remember there was a new company member, and he wasn't there, and someone was like, we better go get, better go get him. <laughs> He's got to be here. It was, it was just, just that, that kind of thing was just really important. I love that he didn't expect anything that he wasn't modeling for you all. Yeah. In the first episode of the City Ballet podcast, we talked about Balanchine's teaching as the epicenter of his leadership and how it was in the classroom that he was defining the vocabulary of movements that he would then build his ballets out of and how the classroom was networked together with the performance because he would be working out choreographic ideas in class. And then also that idea of being constantly present in the work and Balanchine being that constant presence as he oversaw the technical formation of the dancers in the classroom and then guided them through the application of that technique in the choreography and then watched the performance at night. And so it was this whole approach and then the idea of his constant presence through that mm -hmm. and modeling to you all, okay, and, and the other dancers in the company, the kind of devotion that he that he had for yeah, the work. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, Jean, when you were talking about Merson teaching us the same way with Balanchine, that he would teach us in the morning, then we'd rehearse, then he'd be there to watch the performance in the, from the front wing, always, and um, he would, class would be a short warm-up, usually a very quick warm-up, and then he'd be working on whatever he wanted to work on that day. Some days you'd do lots of jumps. The next day you would do no jumps at all. He couldn't show us like Merce did because he had these big clodhopper shoes on, and he would demonstrate, and you tried to figure out what he was doing, and sometimes we'd get it right and sometimes we'd get it wrong. He also did not correct that much. 
You'd do a step if he didn't want it. Do again. Try it again. In the moment, do it again. Do it again. It wasn't use this muscle, use that muscle. You know, until he saw what he wanted or, no, you know, keep doing. Keep trying. The music was everything to him. So we had a wonderful pianist playing for class. And everything would be rhythmically important to him. And this has nothing to do with Merce and everything, but I will say one day I was watching him watch a rehearsal, and afterwards I said to him, Mr. Balanchine, you just looked at the floor the whole rehearsal. Why were you doing that? And he said, I wanted to see who was on time and who wasn't. And that's all he said. And I, so every once in a while I'll come in and just watch the floor and watch people's feet and see how they move and if, if somebody's with it or not. But again, music, music, and we all spoke the same language. He taught us that language, and that enabled us to understand what he wanted in his ballets, and then we were able to teach that afterwards. He also didn't, wasn't that into the choreography. He was choreographing violin concerto one, the first movement, and he, we did maybe 32 measures of something. And I got sick, and I was away for two days, and I came back, and there were four boys with me and myself, and none of us could remember what he'd choreographed because he was working so quickly. And he said, I don't remember either. We'll start over. So he did something entirely different, which ended up being in the ballet. So it's... He knew the music so well, and he knew us so well, and, all right, I, I forgot what I did, but I'll do something else, and it'll be just as good, or it'll be what I want it to be. Hmm. And even though Cunningham separated the music from the dance, timing was very important to him. Rhythm was very important to him. There's a wonderful quote where he said that rhythm is time cut up. <laughs> and I'd love to hear the two of you talk about that dynamic of how important timing and rhythm and... Tempo was for Merce and for Balanchine. Yeah, I think if you ask any Cunningham dancer what one of their favorite things about the work is, they'll say rhythm because Merce had wonderful rhythm. We did have music in class when um, sometimes, not all the time, because <laughs> he only liked certain music, one certain particular pianist. <laughs> Yeah, for his class. But in all the other classes, there was music. But he really, really, his rhythm, and he was so clear about the rhythm. He may not, he was always very clear about that and very important. Um, timing, however, he developed the system of using a stopwatch to, to time sections. So he would know how long something was. And then if we got longer or shorter, he could fix it. Um, and for him, the best performance was when the timings were all perfect. He also sat in the in the, in the wing <laughs> every show. But I, I will say that because he also used silence, and so there would be metered sections in his work and then unmetered sections. And so you would be all doing a very similar rhythmical phrase, and then you'd be suddenly doing something that didn't have a particular rhythm. Or, or he would have given you a sense of the timing by his voice was very powerful. You would kind of know... And then you're cueing off of each other's movement. So there's that, too. So you have to also be aware of everything around you because it really affects the whole continuity of the piece, particularly if you miss a cue or something. Yeah. 
It's a lot like moves for Jerry Robbins. I just kept thinking because that has no music whatsoever. And it's, it was cueing, and I don't seem to remember it that much in summer space, but I vividly remember, and it probably wasn't the first thing that Merce did, but he came in from stage left, back, slapping his thighs and with a rhythm and coming in in a step, and we all just sort of stood there thinking, wow, <laughs> well, how do we do this and what is it? And that was the rhythm he wanted us to hear, that was that was the first thing, and then then the steps came after. And then, as I've said, he was so sweet about he was so interested in what could be on point and what couldn't, oh, and he worked with us women so beautifully about. All right, well, we have this turn here that goes into that. To that, what what do you think you can do with that? And and sometimes we could do, and sometimes we couldn't. And he he was very interested in seeing how much could be on point and how much couldn't. And a lot of it was, but he couldn't have been more open to our ballet technique. We never had class with him. We had no idea of what was going to be asked of us and how we were supposed to dance his ballet. He let us dance it as Balanchine dancers, which, I mean, can you imagine it would be like Mr. Balanchine going to Merce's company and saying, dance symphony and C in your technique and so I mean his his he was opening his whole, his ballet to us to Balanchine and it um, it was fascinating to dance and he was wonderful and it's interesting that openness went both ways because Balanchine was opening up his home to mm -hmm. Merce to let him work with his dancers and then you all were then invited into Merce's work, but able to dance it as you were trained. And it's just such a generosity of spirit on Total. both Balanchine and Merce's Total. part. And a trust. Mm. And we also didn't really know Merce's ballets, because in those days, the ballet world was the ballet world, and the modern company world was the modern company world, not like it is now at all people didn't go off to see these companies in Brooklyn in those days. I mean, it was like going to another country. Nobody was, you either loved ballet or you loved modern. You you couldn't enjoy them both, which didn't make sense to me, but, it, but that's the way it was then. And how fortunate the dancers are now to have Eugene giving them classes and finding out what the technique is about. It's pretty fascinating, and I think a, a great way to, to present the ballet. Mm. Jean, what has the experience been like for you setting summer space at New York City Ballet? This is now the third time that New York City Ballet has performed the piece, first in 1966 in the cast that Kay was part of, then in 1999, and here we are for a third staging. And what's that been like for you? It's been really an honor, and it's been amazing. All the dancers have been really open and really eager, and they've 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 done beautifully. And and they bring so much to it already that there's just it's just a little style things here and there that I'm kind of you know working on. But the intention is really great what they're doing. Mm. I'm 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 really happy with how it's been going. Well, it's interesting that for both Balanchine and for Merce, there didn't have to be a literary story. 
just having the bodies on the stage dancing was drama, was substantive a statement enough. And so it must be interesting to be working with these balancing trained dancers who have that, that presence of having worked in ballets where it's only their presence that carries the piece. And that's so much the same for Merce. Yeah, definitely. That hasn't, they've just come in and they're, they're really, really um, dancing and, and then they're themselves and it's, they're gelling as a group and I, I'm, I'm excited. Merce subtitled the piece A Lyric Dance. Did he ever explain that or did you ever get any more information about that through the years or is it just a mystery? Merce never explained anything to us. <laughs> he just gave us the steps and told us what to do. <laughs> and you had to make of it what you did. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting, too, being a stager of his work because now I get to look at his notes and I see, oh, this is so interesting. This is what it's about for him. Mm. But he didn't really want to put that on me, you as a dancer. Just thinking, oh, another interesting thing is that Summer Space... Um, in Merce's working notes in 58 was called Velocities. So that's an interesting, he's really working with tempos and, and speeds in that piece as well. So Now, though the music and the dance are separate in summer space, mm-hmm. the music is very interesting by Morton Feldman. Ixion is the name of the piece. Could you talk to us a little bit about that music? Yes. Um, so Morton Feldman composed the music. It's notated on graph sheets, and the musicians play whatever notes they want in given registers and time frames. So as a performer, I never really, really, it wasn't something that was overwhelming. It's quite quiet, actually. And so there is a feeling of being exposed on stage a little bit. But in Mercer's work, it can go either way. You can have a lot of sound, and it can be good. It can, it can, it can give you an environment that holds you and, and supports what you're doing. Or you can have very little sound, and actually that's sometimes harder <laughs> hmm. because you have less to uh, hold on to. But sometimes when I'm first performing Mercer's work for the first time, because the dancers will not hear the music until maybe their tech rehearsal for the first time, um, that's we, we, we actually never even heard it till our first performance of pieces. Or did, we might have heard them rehearsing it, but we wouldn't put it together until the performance. So sometimes the first time I would hardly even hear it because I was so involved in what I was doing. And then later, as if, or when I was off stage, I could, could hear it better or in the next performances take it in a little bit more. It's so interesting you say that because when Mr. Balanchine taught us class... He had his one pianist that he wanted in there, Gordon Bolzner, and he worked with Gordon on all the new ballets. And in class, Balanchine, he wanted the music, I hate to say to be secondary, but not to take over, not to be loud. He wanted the dancer in the moment and using all their energy. And he said, if somebody's playing loudly, the dancers sort of relax and say, oh, this is, I'm working so hard and I'm because it's the music that's pulling him. What you just said about summer space and the quietness of the music, I remember now as then you're on stage and you're so much in the moment and in the energy that you have to exude. I I didn't hear the music. I really didn't hear it at all. 
And it was a little bit like that in Mr. Balanchine's class, that you had to work like crazy. And meanwhile, the music was there giving you the tempo at that point, but not, not pushing you. You had to do the pushing. And so it sounds like the same thing in summer space, doesn't it? Yes. From really, yeah, interesting. They were on the same wavelengths with that. Totally. That the music facilitates, not, but it doesn't dominate. It doesn't. And it doesn't make you, it doesn't push you. You have to do the pushing, the dancer. And you're in the moment then. You're 100% there. You're not, you're not anybody else. You're not pretending. You're doing that, yeah. m- that movement to do the movement and with a rhythm. But not, it's all about you and the moment and what you do, what you're dancing. On the other side of it, um, John John was very John Cage was very adamant that his musicians were not affected by the dancers on stage by their dancing. Also, he they were doing their yeah their own their own thing, thing. Yeah. yeah, and they keep stick to it. Mm. They saw that the music and the dance were powerful enough to stand on their own, and they had the common denominator of time. And that you could then bring them together, and then it would create something unexpected. And Cage also talked about how it would then help people in their day-to-day lives, because you had to be able to pay attention to multiple things at once. And I think Cage felt a bit surprised that people would then come into a performance space and all of a sudden get distracted that more than one thing was happening. Because in their life outside the theater, they're answering a phone call and cooking dinner and this, and you've got street sounds out the back door and this and that, and you harmonize them in your everyday life. And Cage was creating a theatrical world where you had to harmonize disparate elements. Jean and Kay, you both now have the task of teaching the technique of the respective master choreographer that you worked with. What is that like for you to now be sharing this technique and these ballets and this legacy of Balanchine and Cunningham. I really try to stay with the moment. You know, I give the form, I give the rhythm, I, I watch them, I let them explore, I give them ideas, but I really want them to be in the present when they're doing it. Most of the, the dancers that I work with have a lot of basic technique. They have a lot of, they come in, I don't have to teach them how to do the basics. So it's, it's, that's nice for me. Um, I can really work on um, rhythm, timing, feeling confident within themselves. And this is so important in, um, in a dancer's to feel that they're really um, engaged in what they're doing. For me, I like to get to that point and then work on refining. Well, being at the School of American Ballet, I think, makes me and most of our teachers feel that we, especially those of us who worked with Mr. Balanchine, a responsibility of teaching what he taught us, which is the musicality, the energy, the being in the moment, the, the passion, and really serving, serving our art form and preserving. So I think we are trying to teach the students and we want the students to understand and become professional dancers and then come back to the school and then teach what they they learned.
so it's it's we want to keep Mr. Balanchine's name alive, and that's what we're trying to do. It's a noble work that both of you are doing. It's a lot of fun. Yes, <laughs> and and a lot of fun. This was so rich. Thank you both so much. It was really great hearing all about it. It was really great to hear your experience too. Well, it's amazing. M.C. Richards was a poet and potter who was on the faculty at Black Mountain College, the college where the Merce Cunningham Dance Company began. She was a lifelong friend of Merce Cunningham and John Cage. Reflecting on their life of work in the art world, this is what she said, and I think it could be said about Balanchine, too. These gentlemen are angels who have a particular task in our time. Part of that is to work artistically, to work creatively, with such an affirming touch, an affirmation of life, an affirmation of ongoing working, the work of art. They continually work as a lifestyle, it is essentially life-affirming in a time when not only in the arts, but in general, there's this real uncertainty about whether a life will continue, or indeed whether it should continue, or whether the human being is finished. And it seemed to me suddenly that these men are like angels whose life, no matter how hard it has been for them, has been dedicated to this kind of task. And that partly accounts for their faithfulness, their faithfulness in times of great risk and lack of support, as if there were something extraordinary at stake. I just love how M.C. Richards articulates that. It's so true. Through a 20th century full of wars and human catastrophes, and having witnessed all kinds of social upheaval firsthand, these men, Cunningham, Cage, and Balanchine, devoted themselves to their work of art. This work was a refuge for them and a powerful declaration to the world that could be summarized like this. The human being is not finished, but is capable of a certain kind of glory. Having explored the many layers of this remarkable Merce Cunningham piece, I hope that you'll come see one of this fall season's performances of Summer Space here at City Ballet. To learn more about the life and work of Merce Cunningham, please consult the reading list that can be found in the notes for this podcast episode. To stay up to date on all City Ballet podcast episode releases, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. All of us here at City Ballet hope to see you soon in the theater, so head over to nycballet.com to have a look at the season. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance. <laughs>